This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. So, having done a, an unprecedented 40-minute introduction, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think I've ever taken this long to lay the groundwork for a topic. Uh, uh, how do you fix it? That's you your question. question and now, you right? only have you 20 minutes. It? Well, Jay and I are trying to dodge that. <laughs> We're like, let's just talk about how we got here. You know what? You know. The two of us could make a lot of money <laughs> if we had a very precise and concise answer to that yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me put it to you this way, because I, under, I, I understand the nature. I mean, we've painted the dilemma pretty pretty uh, vividly. I hope for people. So now, what are the factors that need to be in play in order to even begin to draw on some of the issues that we've talked about? I'm not, I'm not looking for a, you know, a silver bullet here. I'm right. looking for sure. really just some things that need to be out on the table that people need to think about as they think about ministry in this area and how to do it. Uh, I'll, deal, I'll, I'll, mention, I'll start off by mentioning one problem. That, that we haven't even raised that adds to our introduction and now elongates it to 45 minutes. Paint it even longer. Okay. And that is, I look at how we have not really prepared our kids, and I'll say it that way, for the university experience by what, what they're going to hear about the Christian faith once they walk onto the college campus. It's a huge black hole. Uh, we have tended to take an, an approach that says we're going to insulate our kids from skepticism and doubt. We're going to put them in a hermetically sealed bag uh, and and inoculate them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just, and and we're going to protect them. Mm-hmm. And that very protection uh, is precisely, probably, in many cases, what doesn't work once they go out there because they haven't been equipped to face what it is. That they and, and and because they never heard about it or they didn't know about those things, when these areas are sprung on them in the university, the conclusion they might come to is, well, no one ever told me about these things, yep. right. and, uh, and 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 it must be true because I didn't hear a thing about it in church. Well, I mean, I look at so much of what I'm doing with teenagers is inoculating them for the future. I mm-hmm. can't give them every. You know, answer, mm-hmm. but to but to give them safe places to doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, to let doubt be a part of their spiritual mm-hmm. you know development, and not necessarily want the right answers. Because really, I think what's happening is is it, it, it's it's a question about how epistemology. How right. do we know, right? right? Right. And so we're giving all these kids these foundational truths, but we're not really helping them understand how other people come to know things, and then they get into another environment where they're able to they have new tools and other abilities to think with and reflect on, and it just makes this other thing feel very disingenuine. Mm-hmm. And so somehow doubt has to be – I mean, I, I had a small group at a, my home church um, where a lot of the staff were – their teenagers were in my group of seniors, and I just had them write on an index card, tell me something about you that – Probably not a lot of people know that you only want me to read. I'm not going to share it with anybody. Don't put your name on it. I would say more than half of the cards came back that said, 
I'm an atheist. Mm-hmm. I'm just playing along until, you know, t- for the sake of my parents. So there's a there there was a generosity mm-hmm. of I've already come to some conclusions. I've already done this exploration, you know, and I've come to some conclusions and I'm just being kind to my parents right now and the the situation that we're in, try not to make waves because I respect them and I love them and appreciate their view. Well, I just said, okay, this is what we're doing this year. We're just going to let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Why? How did you come to? And you know what? Church was not a place where they, it, during their experience of the church, was not a place where they could ask those questions could explore, safely right? and yeah. explore them. And yeah. so they, but, but they had other places. And I think that's the thing that these devices and everything are letting us do. You know, nobody sits there and goes, oh, what was the name of so, you know I mean? They just, you just Google it, that's right? right? And so they have access to all of these other groups and all these other communities that are, that are thinking and growing. And so, you know, I think we have to allow that to be. That's a part one of, of the experience. digital realities. One of the digital realities is is that you can try and inoculate your kids from getting there, but they're getting there, and so you've got to. Right. You're better off to face it and have the conversation than it is to to pretend or think that you can build a, a kind of a Berlin Wall uh, to protect right. your right. protect your and kids from this. Mark Mark has hit on something I think is really important, and, and I think the millennials or the emerging uh, adults, extended adolescent, we have all these terms that we're using, mm-hmm. um, but. Down out, uh, and the and the ability to ask questions mm-hmm. because um, the generation ahead of this group doesn't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had very clear-cut answers, and even the way we did evangelism and the way we used the four spiritual laws, I mean, it was very Here's precise, you know, yeah, right. and, and it was based even on a science. You know, the, the first reference to that is, you know, just like there are physical laws in the universe that guide, you know, there are spiritual laws, right, yeah. right, right. And, and, and these kids are going, what? And there was a time when and, that worked. And it worked, but yeah. it's, that was it's a, the not right as message. A, yeah, it's not as effective anymore, and we, one of the, I think one of the solutions, one of the many faceted solution that we're going to have to come up with uh, is to entertain those doubts, to allow these young people in the safety of, of a loving community and environment to ask these hard questions. And and the problem is our generation has to be confident enough in our own that our faith is robust enough mm-hmm. to handle these doubts and to handle these questions. You know, if we don't have a, a, a very concise or specific answer right now, you know what, let's study this and let's come up with a good answer that works, that makes sense from our theological and doctrinal perspective and what God's Word says. But so many people are even afraid of the questions. Don't even ask that. You asked that question, you're not a Christian. Get out of here. And and a lot of teenagers, a lot of emerging adults are leaving because of that. There's the door. I'm going through it. They're leaving because of that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I I see the same thing in an area that I work in, which is related to Apologetics. A lot of the writing that I do is related to apologetics, and mm-hmm. I think we have we have set the table and the bar so high we have we have designed our own failure. <laughs> okay, and the point is, is it's like apologetics is so absolutely clear that if you don't get it and you have doubt, you must be a dunce. Okay, <laughs> all right. Right. And and I'm sitting here going, no, I work in the humanities. I know what it is to work in ancient history. I know how this stuff works. It's never that clean. Mm-hmm. And and so when we say, and I love this book. For, I mean, it served a generation well, but it sets the problem. Evidence that demands a verdict. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Uh, a lot of people saying, I doesn't demand that verdict. Uh, there are things on the table here that need to be – and so what we do is we don't put on the table the things that cause people to question. We simply say, this is the way it is. You know, it's Walter Cronkite. This is the way it is. Uh, and, 
Uh, and it, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We've got to come to a place where we have a conversation and we help people think their way through the judgments that are involved in, right. in the movement towards faith. Right. They're sound judgments. They're reasonable judgments. I, I think we can be confident of that. But they aren't 100 percent slam dunks. No, they're and not. Yet, and, and, and I just did a, 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 a <coughs> conference tour for teenagers. I just shared with them – I didn't even try to get – them to totally believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of God's Word. Mm-hmm. All I wanted to get them to, because I knew where they were mm-hmm. generationally, was to believe that it was rational mm-hmm. to have confidence in the Bible, mm-hmm. right? Let's do that step before right. we try to get to these right. other right. other theological positions. Just instead of not going for broke, right. but just trying to get them to right. that stage to go, you are not irrational if you believe this. Right. It is reasonable to have confidence because in the, the whole world is telling them they are. Right. Yeah. So, but just to get them to there and to right. give them enough to give them to that. Yeah. I got. So, I was overwhelmed by the amount of response uh-huh. from teenagers saying I was an atheist until I heard you know this or whatever, and it, and I was not giving them, you know. Every answer, right. footnote, and everything. I was just trying to help them say it's reasonable to have confidence in this book, and I think that just that shaping of it, without trying to go to certainty, yes. was enough to help them have faith again. It's very, very know? similar to what I say in discussing apologetics in the realms that I do, which is often the university campuses or with parents. And that is to say, or when you're sharing or thinking about evangelism, and you come up against someone who's skeptical, they think the Bible is an old book. They think. It's an irrelevant book. They say, why should I believe this is written by a whole series of authors across the different times? It has different emphases in it. There's no way to hold that thing together. And if you don't have a view of inspiration on the surface, that looks like a very, very reasonable position. Mm-hmm. So the response is, what I say is, my goal isn't to bring you all the way to where I am theologically. My goal is to give you enough pause to say and ask this question, why has this book served the world, in the case of the Old Testament, well for 34 centuries, and why has the New Testament served mankind well for 20 centuries? And my goal is to give them pause to say, maybe there's something in here that makes this book a classic, if you want to profess it that way, that's worth taking a look at. After all, previous generations of humanity for centuries have done so. So isn't it foolish to just toss that away? Mm-hmm. Isn't there some value in taking a look and seeing what it what it says? And my goal is not to pursue persuade them into my entire theological model, my simple goal is to give them enough pause that they'll open the Bible and take a look at it, and then the Bible can do its work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that sometimes we've gone for too much, mm-hmm. and in going for too much, the process in the process, we've short-circuited people's opportunity to come in. So obviously that's one element of, of this equation. Uh, we want to – What about, you, Bob, it's baby steps. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not thinking about what the goal is or the end is, which is where we typically teach for, but it's going, what steps do people need to take to, to get to a place? That's right. And we have to sometimes question, is the end necessarily the requirement? Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. can faith exist in these lower steps of 
of faith and belief. Well, as I as I often say when I'm on a college campus, I will say I find the per, the closer a person gets to Jesus, the more their regard for the Bible goes up. Yes, and so and prayer and everything. exactly right. So so the point is is that you've got to have the right hub, if you will, and and, and so I think that that you know a key hub obviously is what what you what you do and what you say about Jesus is a way to to draw people in and. and so I'm I'm concerned we're about still time framing. here. Huh? We're still yeah. framing the we're question. Framing. But I think, I think yeah. what we're doing here is a good example, though, of an application, and that is we can spend a lot of time talking about the problem, right? And at some point, we just have to say this is a reality, right? Now, what are we going to do? That's and I right. think you know I think that that's the first thing the church has to do is say we're not going to gripe and complain and wish it were different and. You know what I mean? We have to say this is a very complex to, thing. You have to deal with the cards you've been dealt. And That's this right. is where yeah. we're at. And the yeah. and, and the church the churches that say we're not gonna be upset about where a generation's at and try to preserve something and jar it like it was in the past, but we're gonna realize this is a living, breathing relationship with God that we have as the body of Christ. And let's invite, but we've got to invite them to be co-participants mm -hmm. in in the story. I think that's the problem. The idea of one person having the visionary leadership to move it forward relevantly, mm -hmm. I don't know, is going to be the way that you're really going to find community in the way this generation wants to find yeah. it. And so the problem becomes that, it, or one of the problems that can, can exist is in trying to go back and preserve, you've actually maintained the disconnections that got you in the situation that you're in. So that doesn't yeah. help you. Right, right. Yeah. They love to collaboratively learn, mm -hmm. and so they would rather sol solve a problem as a community, mm -hmm. instead of you having the answer mm -hmm. that you're going to give to me, let's get together and work through this problem together and mm -hmm. come up with a problem so solution together. And and churches don't typically do it that so way. So so we so one of, one of the things we're saying is you got to allow room for doubt. You've got to have it's got to be extremely interactive. It's got to be integrated with the larger programs of the church. Intergenerational. In, in, it's got to be intergenerational. It, it, it's got to be uh, uh, collaborative, not just interactive. It's got to allow for input. In fact, there's value in the input that that uh, this age group is offering to help the church negotiate the territory because they're living in the middle of it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and so. it's more than input, though. It's, it's literally it's co-creation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real important term because mm -hmm. a lot of times we'll go out and you know, the pastor will sit down with the young people and go, hey, you know, give us some input. What would you? How yeah. would you do this or whatever? But they're not really invited, and they learn something too about. They learn and mature by being co-creators uh -huh. with those that have gone before them, right? right and right. so, there there is something about literally building it together uh -huh. and developing this community together. I think that's really powerful. Okay, so what else? We put a few things on the table. What else? Uh, what what else helps? Us I'll down offer the road? something that's that's just real practical mm -hmm. um, that that I believe it will help. But it's just one small aspect. Um, we focus in youth ministry a lot of times on the transition from from childhood or elementary school mm -hmm. into middle school or junior high ministry. And we, we spent a lot of time programming for that transition. We want to capture these kids that are 11 and 12 years old and bring them into the youth ministry kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But when they get to 12th grade and they graduate from high school, we kind of kick them out the door and say, have a nice life, you know, hope you make it kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And, and if you look around the country, very few churches have any kind of real 
college ministry or young adult ministry programming. There's not a lot of interest or focus in and that. And so you got and, crew. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you do. Yeah, so right. my, yeah. what I'm teaching my students at the seminary right now is that because of extended adolescence, mm-hmm. the youth minister, if the church is lucky enough and financially stable enough to have a youth minister, that person needs to focus not just on this 7th through 12th grade or 6th through 12th grade mm-hmm. age group. That life does not end at 12th grade. Mm-hmm. They've got to think about tra- the transition from 12th grade into the great unknown, whether it's college or whether it's uh, you know some sort of a career choice that they make, that, that that is not a cliff that they fall off of, and that you've got to intentionally think about ministering, continuing to minister to those students even after they're 18 years old. And so many churches don't do that. There's no thought given, once they're 18, once they graduate from high school, have a great time, you know, hope you survive right. kind of thing. We can't do that. Yeah. And so I'm telling my, my youth ministry students that are graduating from DTS, your ministry does not end when they graduate from high school. In fact, uh, I want a church to bring under that youth minister the college ministry, young adult ministry umbrella. Mm-hmm. That that youth minister probably, if they've gone to seminary, have gone to a good Bible college, they're probably better equipped to relate to and a program and a minister with that particular age group than some of the older, other generation ministers that are on staff. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, my theory is the same, is very similar, and that is that, that once kids hit 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, there's a whole other life transition that, 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 that the church needs to be sensitive to that basically they haven't uh, dealt well with. And I actually think the fact that we're in a digital age provides some opportunities for maintaining those contacts mm-hmm. and connections that we haven't thought about on the church, on the mm-hmm. church side. Mm-hmm. You know, if kids are used to relating to people from a distance, Okay, what prevents those relationships that were built in through the high school years from continuing once a kid goes off to college, et cetera? A good example of that is I'm a small group leader at my church, and so I have a group of freshmen, and I see them through senior year. Mm -hmm. And then instead of rushing to give me another freshman group, Mm -hmm. why don't you give me my fifth year Mm -hmm. is sticking with that group of students and connecting with them in my volunteer hours that were spent small group preparation is now just staying in contact with them, maybe visiting them, mm-hmm. whatever the case is, but the church empowering me to do that. And I think that's the thing is when we think about that college ministry or whatever, it doesn't have to be an on-site gathering. Correct. Mm-hmm. It's Correct. literally just a way to connect. 
And to piggyback on what Jay is saying, I think the vocational development mm-hmm. is a really significant part of the church in terms of mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, church, we're always talking, you know, you need to live 24-7 for Jesus. Um, but then <laughs> what we mean by that is you need to be doing stuff at church 24-7. Right. Right? And, and most people are going, wait a minute, you know, how is, how is what I'm doing at my church relevant in my vocation? And a lot of people in the church don't go to their pastors for vocational direction, mm-hmm. right? But I think we have to start thinking about how are we as a church preparing vocationally a generation to see that as their platform for change. I mean, when you when you sign up for a web form, it doesn't say minister, you know what, those are not options. Right. They don't even care about tracking us. That's how non-influential we are as parish- as ministers. Right. Uh, you know, we're not even being tracked. There's no reverend in the pull-down box. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it's, a, it's just a really interesting thing when you start looking. I mean, nonprofit is about the best category I can put myself in <laughs> yeah. or religious, you yeah. know, just religious if they get yeah. that, yeah. if they even have that. Right. So we're not even being tracked by the, by the culture makers out there. So I'm sitting there going, my congregants are going to be much more a powerful part of changing culture and living out the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, um, then maybe I am as the senior pastor of the church or the youth minister or whatever the case is. So how are we empowering this generation who is struggling to find how they're going to start? How do we think about funding them in ventures that Mm -hmm. they're doing? Because right now they're going to Kickstarter to start their business. Mm -hmm. They're not going to banks, right? right. Uh, They're going to mom and dad and saying, hey, well, you want to get in on this project. How can the church think that way about how we're empowering and and tent makers, you know, out there to really do that? And and how are we – I just think there's a whole new imagination we need to have. You've you've walked into Uh – you've extended our introduction to an hour. (laughs) (laughs) You stepped right into one. You did. Really? We're, we're, yeah. we're in the pro- the next podcast that we're doing after this one is on the theology of work, and we uh-huh. have we have partnered with the Kern Family Foundation to make thinking through a theology of work and vocation a part of the environment here that we get our students to think about as they pastor. You know, how many churches? Why don't churches do that with young people? They aren't even doing it with their adults. Right. You right. know, right. how do we lift up vocations for our adults? Right. How do we make people think about their twenty four seven experience? at work, their nine-to-five experience, as a part of what we talk about in the pulpit. The same disconnect that we find with with young people is also the same disconnect we have with people in their work. And my goodness, those are two of the most important sociological pools the church deals sure. with on a regular basis. Sure. So no wonder we're struggling. Right. So one of the, well, one ahead. of the characteristics uh, of millennials or the emerging uh, adults is a term called missional. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a strong sense of wanting to accomplish something. They want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. They want to do something that's significant, that matters, mm-hmm. that changes the world. They have big idealistic goals, and they want to make it happen. And yet, they're not given a lot of opportunities to even think that way within the local church. Mm -hmm. So the church, as Mark was saying, and I think dovetailing with Mm -hmm. what you're talking about, the church has got to think about how we're going to empower and help these young adults, these young people, think through where they're going to count, where they're going to make a difference, not just to help the poor, which is an an important part of it, not just to help the homeless, which is an important part of it, not just to build housing with Habitat for Humanity, which is an important part of it, but how can they represent 
Jesus. And that's another one of the words they use, incarnational. Mm -hmm. How can they be Jesus and represent Jesus well in their entire sphere of influence? Not just at church on Sunday night, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, whatever, but every that 24-7, every place they go and every relationship that are a part of. They want to it's know how to do that well. And I yeah, think, it's and you bring up another important vocation. thing. We've got to stop looking at this generational shift as a negative. Mm -hmm. right. you know, we look at them and we call them, well, they're selfish, they're self-absorbed. And there are reasons for that. And it really shows up during the teen years mm -hmm. more than anything. But one of the things that, um, that, uh, Ar that Ar uh, Arnett has identified about emerging adults is that they have put a little bit of that selfishness behind. Mm -hmm. They still are not unstable, like stable, you know. Mm -hmm like they were when they were teenagers, but they're more interested in their parents' input and advice now. Right. They, 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 there's a shift that's gone on. And so there's a, we have to distinguish between what is self-focused mm -hmm. and selfish. Mm -hmm. Selfish is sinful, but self-focused is kind of saying, I, ha I do have to think about how I'm going Please to take care me. of myself today. Yeah. Yeah. And so there, there is a difference between those two things. They have to figure out, how am I surviving? How am I going to you know, take care of my family and whatever today? There is that little bit of self-focus that's there, but it's a little bit different than being selfish. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing to realize, and that missional quality is really important to realize. And what this raises is, again, we're trying to talk about towards solutions or at least taking steps forward, baby steps. What, what this also shows is, is that rather than thinking about church and spirituality happening over here in a building and then building all your programming to reinforce that idea, what you're talking about is, is church and discipleship happening in the totality of life and structuring your mm -hmm. programs in such a way that you're reflecting that. Right. Uh, we have, I think, in the church create, allowed the culture to create a sacred, secular divide mm -hmm. in the way we are even approach doing our church that actually actually works against the development of discipleship. Absolutely. And 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 what you're talking about here is being sufficiently engaged across the span of life and not building up those walls in such a way that a person sees immediately the relevance of their Christian experience to where it is God has them in school or getting ready to get a job or whatever it right, is right. In, in moving in those ways. Well, I, I, let, let me circle right back. I mean, this may <laughs> yeah. completely blow things out of the water in terms of our train of thought, but I want to circle back to something <laughs> I said earlier. Okay. And, and I, I believe that the parents do have the primary responsibility of, of discipling their kids. That doesn't mean that they're the only ones doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that the community, the church community, has, a, a, I believe really in a three-pronged approach, the church community has a huge part of this. The parents have a huge part of this and making sure that that church community is the place for them to be mm -hmm. and that there's other adults that are having input. But I also believe that there's an individual aspect of it. And, and Chap Clark has pointed out some things that I think are helpful, that that you know the more adults that are investing in the lives of these young people, not just mom and dad, but other people, coaches and teachers and, and next-door neighbors and uncles and, and a variety of adults that are investing in the lives of these teenagers, that that is also another prong of that discipleship process. That there's more of a community aspect to it, but it's still, I believe, the parents' responsibility to make sure that it's happening, both doing it themselves, but also making sure that the community and the church and these other adults are involved in that process. In fact, this Lifeway survey that was done that I quoted earlier makes the point that uh, the, the kids who stayed in church 
have a track record of having been influenced by at least five other adults okay. outside their family. That comes out of CHAP's research. That's right. And so, and, and so you see that this involvement. And, and I think that's important, and I agree with Jay somewhat. I, we have a little disagreement on mm -hmm. the primary responsibility, because I still put it back on the church. Mm -hmm. and, but I think it's really important when you're, looking, but when you're but when you're looking at a five percent unwed mothers in 1960 to to 41 percent in the present day, our idea of family has it's fundamentally changing. changed. And and you know Hannah, she outsourced the spiritual development of Samuel uh, to to the temple. Uh, I don't know that it's a bad model all the time, mm -hmm. and so I, I I just think that we need to we need to be thinking. Well, I, I, I get afraid. I just see churches pushing back on mom and dad. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility. I'm going. Wow, we are. If if we're going to push mom and dad and say it's all their responsibility, we're denying who we are as the church, and we've just cut off anybody that's not in a conventional family structure, which is the larger population well, actually, that needs that, Jesus. That's there. There are two points I want to make so that we. We don't end up in a in a disjunction here, and that is, I actually think it it's probably um, a waste of breath to try and figure out should we put the stress on the family or sure, should we put the sure, church on the sure. chur or church. At what we need is we need the family and we and, need the church. But then they're the point, both important. The Absolutely. point that you're making, though, beyond that, is another point that I think the church has a blind spot on, and that is, we have a society that is producing pill people who don't operate in normative use your word conventional families okay their social structure is either uh, parentless or one parent or a mixed family or uh, there are all kinds of other possibilities and so when we make the model the conventional family there are whole swaths of people we're cutting ourselves off from just by the way we're thinking about the question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what that means is is that some thoughts got to be given to how you, how you help the single mom, mm -hmm. how do you help the unmarried uh, mother, how do you help the single dad, how do you help the mixed families, all those combinations of things. And again, we're in a situation where I can think about how I wish it was, right, okay? right, but that's right. not going to do me any good with that group. Well, I mean, it, it yeah. takes a parent to become spiritually mature, and a lot of our parents are coming to faith as a result like, of their teenagers coming to faith. So how can that parent possibly you know, be at a, a maturity level to be able to help support that? But I, I think you know, when I think about all this, I look at my two teenagers right now. I look at the world that they're living in, and I go, you know what? We just all have to die. <laughs> you know, I mean, like that's, I mean, they're, within them is the ability to create the response that's needed for this generation. Mm -hmm. We are so in love with the structures and the forms that we've created, you know, and the debt associated with those structures and forms. And they're going to come up and go, I'm not paying to pave a parking lot. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that, yeah. they, are, they are going to create something wholly new inside of them. The choice we have is the, is the, the older uh, uh, elders in the churches, do we invite them? To help be conspirators with us in this, yeah. Are we willing to have the, the conver that conversation? Are we willing to, to yeah. allow them to do yeah. that? Because they're going to do it on their own. Because the church is not going away. Yeah, it's just, but it could radically change what it, who's who's driving it and how it's being driven. And, and how much better if it gets done with uh, a multi generational, alongside uh, mutually supportive approach, as opposed to. 
the wisdom from above, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, it's, it's hard. I mean, yeah. the older we get, we get set in our ways. We like the way we've done things. It's hard to to invite that new way of thinking in, you know? Um, I don't like it, <laughs> and I'm advocating for it, but it's, it is it is really, really hard. But I, I see great, great hope in in how they see life and you know, and it may just be that some of us have to have to get out of the way. Too. And mm-hmm. sometimes God uses uh, change. You know, He's always working on all of us till the very end. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the thing I like to say about Christianity that I find I find people have trouble processing, but I think it's important is is that Christianity is actually committed to the fact that I'm going to be changing until God's done with me, and that has not happened yet. Mm-hmm. So, so there's change built into the way I'm supposed to interact and think and that kind of thing. Now, it's supposed to be done in, in, with, with certain kinds of, of commitments alongside of it, but, but God is working on me. And one of the ways that I think God works in his communities is by giving us other groups that we interact with who, who identify with us but who love us enough to say, is this necessarily the only way to do this? And to give that space up so that so that those kinds of conversations can take place. Well, I think it's fair to say we have only scratched the surface. We probably <laughs> yeah. did. We probably did a pretty good job of raising all kinds of uh, a lot uh, more questions than we <laughs> Exactly right. But but I, but I think that someone looking at this age group and what it means for the church and why the church is so. Um, wrestling with this group, uh, listening to this has the opportunity to get a sense of, okay, I think I can begin to get why this is so complicated, um, and hopefully can step back, take a deep breath and say, this is probably something that's not going to be answered overnight. This is going to take a lot of work, a lot of conversation. So I suspect we'll be inviting you back to talk funerals. more about this. A that's lot of right. Funerals. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying not to inject death into the equation, okay? so. Um, but um, ho- hopefully this has been helpful for people to reflect on, and particularly if you're a pastor or a youth leader and you're listening to this, I hope that, that one, uh, it gives you a sense of what the playing field is, and two, perhaps more importantly, has opened up some ideas of how to think differently about some of these areas and maybe even encourage you to think more seriously about these areas and how they integrate into your larger church. So I thank you both for being with us, and I thank you for being with the Table Cop podcast where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.